Hello, everybody. Morning. Welcome to you. Yeah, I'm Mike Hall, Assistant Minister of this church. You're very welcome. I add my welcome to Annalisa's, whether you're new here, first time here, or regular. So we're just begun, actually, a sermon series on this story of Joseph, as, uh, as was said earlier. And Mike Barton kicked that off for us at this service last week. And he spoke of Joseph as three things, really. Loved by his father, that's where the Technicolor Dreamcoat came from. Hated by his brothers, who despised his dreams of superiority over them. And a prophet of God, one who spoke God's revelation and was hated for it. And he reflected on Joseph, even as a pointer towards Jesus Christ and the opposition he faced. Our passage that we just heard read to us looks at Joseph as one sold into slavery. And I just want to focus uh, in my talk on two aspects of that. First, being sold into slavery, how that crime came about and what we infer today. And second, how life in that system, as he was traded as a commodity, might have felt for Joseph, how his sense of himself and God in that place must have been challenged so deeply. So first, I'm going to focus on being sold into slavery. Now, the crime that's committed is displayed, is described at length in our passage, and it's a particularly merciless one. Joseph's brothers are tending their flocks. They see him approach in the distance, and their first instinct is to kill him and cover up their crime with lies about an animal attack. You see, they're still festering over Joseph's dreams, and they want to get back at him for his presumption. They can't see God in those dreams, just a brother who they need to mock, mistrust, and by whom they feel threatened. Now, Reuben, the elder brother, has a better instinct and wants ultimately to free him, but it's agreed that they throw him into that empty system, that empty well from which he can't escape. And then the coincidental arrival of Ishmaelite merchants gives them a different idea to sell Joseph into slavery, ultimately in Egypt, under their control. That way, they wouldn't be guilty of spilling his blood. Whilst being able to produce Joseph's robe to their grieving father, smeared in goat's blood as evidence of his death in an unknown attack. I called their crime merciless. Let's see what the ingredients are that make it so. First, in being stripped of his robe, in being stripped of his freedom too, Joseph is also stripped of his identity. Without identity, a specialness before his father and before God, Joseph becomes a tradable commodity in his brother's eyes. There's also a secrecy to the crime of selling on Joseph. He'll never be seen again. He'll never be able to tell his version of the truth. He becomes unseen. The chance arrival of those Ishmaelite merchants creates a marketplace, a primitive network for the sale of such a young boy. And there's financial gain for his brothers, 20 shekels, we're told. Who knows, perhaps 10 or 15 grand. For the merchants... The value in is, is in the potential exploitation of Joseph 
in the future, whatever that involves. Oh, yes, and at the end, there's a grieving father who he believes will never see his son again. Those are some of the ingredients of that crime. And in all the merciless calculations of the brothers, two things are underestimated. First, Joseph, and second, God, and the two in combination. We'll hear more throughout this series as the weeks go on about why those miscalculations were quite so great. That a God who seems almost absent from the story at this point was able to work in its aftermath quite so powerfully. But I believe it's simply not possible in all conscience to pass over the description of that terrible crime and all its ingredients without putting them in their contemporary context. This is the most explicit description in the Bible of what we now know as human trafficking. Human trafficking is the outcome of the very same ingredients today. Stripping people of their identity. Making them into tradable commodities. A crime that is unseen and unknown, invisible to so many of us. Networks and marketplaces that make it possible. Financial gain and exploitation. And families who grieve as their children often are taken to places where they'll not be seen again. Human trafficking has the same ingredients today. Human flesh, human work, human organs carry value to the unscrupulous who can work with the same motivations as the brothers and those merchants. It is the fastest international organized crime in the modern world, second only to drugs in value. It's international, but it's also local. There were four arrests last year in a single case in Isha and Walton-on-Thames for the trafficking of vulnerable women from Southeast Asia who were being exploited in hotels around Gatwick airports. It has millions of victims, often as innocent as Joseph, lured from poor living conditions with no prospect of improvement. Its victims are often so gullible to promises of better lives, more money, housing. Some may be taken forcibly from families or even sold on by desperate parents and exploited elsewhere for labor, sex, or even their organs. They are far from sight and unseen, with no voice of their own to shout for a rescuer. I've included, instead of a summary of my talk, in the uh, green sheet inside your uh, leaflet, some information, some places that you can go to find out a little bit more about human trafficking if you're moved to do so. But also, in that is something called the Freedom Prayer, which I'm going to suggest we say together in a moment. Because that prayer reflects that human trafficking, of which Joseph is that early example, is an absolute denial of all those things that God wants us to be, why and how he created us. It's a crime against humanity, of course, but it's also a crime against God. And as Christians, we're called to stand up for those who have been robbed of those things given by God 
And so it's a relevant prayer for us too. So I'm just going to suggest at this midpoint really in the sermon that we fish out our green sheets from those orders of service and say together that freedom prayer. It's a prayer that expresses much of what I've said already. And in bold, you'll see there words that we can say as a congregation that just lifts those people to their loving and creating God. So I'll say the words that, uh, as they lie, and then we'll say together those words in bold, which start, Father God of freedom. Okay, all set. Let's pray. We've heard the voice of freedom crying, let my people go. Father God of freedom, who leads us into life, deliver us from every evil and make us deliverers of others. Where chains restrain God's chosen children, where humans trade in kin and skin, May our words pass on your promise of a land where liberty is sweet. Father God of freedom, who leads us into life, deliver us from every evil and make us deliverers of others. Give us, Lord, faith to face the pharaohs who line their pockets from this plague. Send us as salvation sponsors, willing servants, slaves to love. Father God of freedom, who leads us into life, deliver us from every evil and make of us deliverers of others. Amen. So there we are. That's the prayer of freedom And that may be something we want to take away and look at during the week or pray, including our prayers this week. And as I say, there's more information both from the Church of England website and their linked charity, Stop the Traffic on Human Trafficking. We're going to turn now to the second part of the sermon, which looks very much at Joseph's life in the pit. But I hope you don't mind if I give you a short diversion at this point um, with a short story. It relates to Joseph in a very different type of pit. And it's a story that happened to me earlier in life when I was about 21. I was living with my brother and some of his friends at a flat in Ealing. Ealing, yeah. And now they, they were all musicians and Uh, They were working in the West End show orchestras of the time, you know, Evita and so on and so forth. And I could play well to the flute and the piccolo. Now, one of the flatmates there, Andy, was doing a very long season in the band for Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at the then Westminster Theatre, now knocked down, I think. And doing such a long season meant that Andy needed breaks away, and so he cultivated people who could stand in for him, or depths, as they're known in the business. His part in Joseph, in the band in Joseph, was to play the flute, piccolo, and also the clarinet, and he wanted to cultivate me as someone who could depth for him from time to time. And I remember him saying, look, I'm going away in a few weeks. You could depth. It's good money, and you can do it easily. And I pointed out that I had never touched a clarinet in my life. He said, don't worry, Mike. He said, it's a lot easier than the flute, 
and you've got three weeks. <laughs> and when the moment came for me to play in the pit for Joseph, I have never been so ill-prepared or nervous about anything in my whole life before or since. And I cringe even now to reflect on what an utter shambles I made of it with no rehearsal. Everything, when played live, seemed at least twice as fast as I'd practiced it. I played in some of the wrong places, in some of the silences, for sure. I could not wait to get back to my job in marketing. I got my money, which was very generous, but just to tell you how bad it was, the whole episode was never mentioned again by anybody, even in jest. It was somehow beyond words it had been that bad. And my West End musical career was over as quickly as it had begun. Well, that's a real aside, but I thought you might want to hear it because it was Joseph in the pit. But the real pit... That was my pit. The real pit in which Joseph found himself was a rather different one. And I was struck as some of us sat round at morning prayer on Friday in the prayer room there by some of the words in Psalm 77. I'm just going to read them to you now. And you might think about being in the pit or how Joseph might have felt at that moment. Some words from Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? In his anger, has he withheld his compassion? Those are the deep thoughts of one whose life is in the pit. And so I wondered whether that might be how Joseph was feeling when his brothers dumped him in that pit and sold him on. And I thought of the suddenness of Joseph's decline. You know, apparently weeks earlier, he'd been a happy young shepherd, favored by his father, special to God, promised with the blessing of dreams of his special role in God's plan. And then moments later, dumped and sold into slavery, trafficked, stripped of identity and unseen, without a future. And as he stood or lay in that well, We're told little at that moment about Joseph's response to all that was happening, but perhaps we can imagine his feelings of powerlessness, that life was spiraling out of control already, that his brothers had no love left for him, that the future held only fear. And as for God, is this really what it means to be favored by God, to be in this pit Feeling at his lowest ebb, perhaps, Joseph knew nothing of how his story would develop. At that point in time, he was alone, utterly alone, and feeling abandoned. Maybe that's how Jesus felt when at the Mount of Olives on the eve of his crucifixion, 
Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Luke writes. Or when the next day he cried the words of God's abandonment, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Maybe that's how we feel. When we suffer times of hardship, we feel abandoned, that God is absent, that the things that we believed in have sustained us are no longer real and can no longer give us authentic hope. Perhaps then we feel alongside Joseph in the pit. And our suffering, of course, is amplified many times in the tragic lives of the trafficked that I spoke about earlier. Now, Joseph. Joseph had dreams to cling on to, perhaps, however distant those dreams might have become. Jesus had the divine plan of redemption to fulfill, incredibly hard, though that was to execute. What do we cling on to? We don't always have the luxury of a rear-view mirror or a vision of the future that puts our suffering into context. We don't always have a view of what God has in store or how things might develop. And at those times, we might feel guilty for being faithless. We might feel out of love with God or out of love with ourselves. That's okay. Why is it okay? Because as I've reflected on the story of Joseph in the pit this week, I've come to the conclusion that, like the Bible, life nearly always has another chapter to come. The writer of Genesis ended chapter 37, as we heard, with the cold words that the Midianites sold Joseph on in Egypt to Potiphar, one of of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Yet, you know, that might be the end of chapter 37, but there's a chapter 38 a 39, and one after that. God is always moving, and the story always moves on. We're part of his story as well. We're part of that phase in God's great story where the followers of Jesus, among which we are numbered, rise from the pit and spring up round the world awaiting his return. And we know that there's a more glorious phase to come in a new creation. But for now, we are where we are. There isn't always a happy ending at the foot of every chapter of Joseph's life or of ours. We know that, and we don't always expect it. But there is a flow to the story from which we can draw hope even from the depths. That's a story, God's story, which will unfold week by week as we continue to hear of all the remarkable events that surround Joseph's and his people's transformation. Amen.